Well, welcome to the international headquarters of the Living Church of God. We appreciate the opportunity to meet here in what has come to be known as the Fellowship Room. It's a beautiful winter day, and greetings to all our brethren around the world. We pray that all of us are rejoicing in the Sabbath, and sometimes it's difficult to do that when we face trials. We all face all kinds of trials and tests and problems. We suffer individually, and we suffer as a church from time to time. When the Apostle Paul was in a Roman prison, he wrote to the church at Philippi. If we turn to Philippians, the first chapter, there are times, of course, when we cannot rejoice, but if we have the big picture in mind, we can rejoice. Philippians, the first chapter. Remember that the Apostle Paul was in prison, and he was in Chains. In fact, he mentions that here uh, three times in the first chapter of Philippians, Philippians 1 and verse 12. But I, would, but I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. So even though he was in prison, that didn't stop the gospel from going out. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then in uh, verse uh, uh, 16, uh, the one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds or to my chains. And then... uh, So he is talking about uh, verse 7. He says, I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. The point is that here he was in prison, he was in chains, and yet what was his attitude? Ten times in the book of Philippians you find the word rejoice. How could Paul ever do that when he's in chains in his prison? And he tells the brethren in the Philippi, rejoice ten times. Then he talks about joy. There are other uh, words that he uses as well. And we, brethren, in our times of trial and test, need to have the big picture, as the Apostle Paul did, so that we can rejoice. Let's turn to James, the first chapter, James 1. And again, such a powerful verse here. I hope that we apply it in our lives you heard me say before, sometimes I get a little nervous and I tell myself, maintain a positive and tranquil mind. Maintain a positive and tranquil mind. One of the seven laws of radiant health that Mr. Meredith wrote about years ago. Verse 2 of James 1, My brethren, count it all joy. It may not be joyful, but he says to count it all joy because you know there's an end and a purpose and a good benefit and effect from the the trial. Count it all joy when you enter into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. God wants to create in us his perfect, righteous, glorious character. Let's turn to uh, Philippians 2 again, uh, Philippians the uh, second chapter. I should have uh, let you read this when we were back there, but Philippians 2, verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. As we were hearing in the, uh, in the sermonette, we have to look to the Bible for our guidance and for our plans. Those are the bases for our plans. Holding fast the word of life. Remember what uh, Jesus said to the Philadelphians in Revelation 3. Hold fast that which you have, that no man take your crown. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, if I have to die for you and for the gospel, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Really, this is one of the uh, challenges I gave the brethren uh, in the recent uh, sermon last Sabbath, uh, that sometimes when we have to make decisions, it may be painful because maybe a minister or a pastor has, has left us or some family member has gone after another church or a doctrine and has left the truth. We have to be careful that we think about our commitment that we made at baptism, which was what? But you would love Christ more than brother, sister, mother, father, husband, wife, and your own life also. And it's sad sometimes that some have forgotten that commitment at baptism and feel they have to follow a man or a woman or someone rather than Christ. And we, I hope that we all remember that and remember it solidly because it's a commitment we've made, and of course we should remember it every Passover but when we uh, face those kinds of trials, we have to make decisions, and uh, someone wants to pull us away from the truth, we have to think about what is our priority and what does Christ want us to do. But the Apostle Paul had this attitude of rejoicing, Philippians 4.4. 4, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. We have uh, sermons in our sermon library, number 165, rejoice in the Lord always. And number 177, rejoice in God's Sabbath. In what should we rejoice? Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. It's difficult when we face trials and tests, but if we have the big picture, we see the end of the story, we see God's purpose that he's going to bless us at the end of our trials. We come through them, and if we're faithful... 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, starting with verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Again, vanity and ego can uh, puff up. Uh, knowledge can puff up. Those who think that they're great intellectuals and uh, don't have that knowledge qualified by the truth of the Bible. Verse 5, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Verse 6, does not rejoice in iniquity, and yet the world rejoices in all kinds of perversions. But true love does not rejoice in iniquity, lawlessness. But what? Rejoices in the truth. There's where we can rejoice. We can rejoice in the Sabbath, we can rejoice in uh, our during our trials, but we can also rejoice in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
Do we really appreciate the truth and rejoice in the truth as deeply as we should? Do we take God's granted, God's uh, revealed knowledge for granted? On August 12th, I gave a sermon titled, Treasure the Truth. And then a follow-up sermon on November 4th, Live the Truth, which I was unable to conclude with seven points on how to live the truth. So today I'd like to conclude that series with part three, uh, Rejoice in the Truth. Uh, the word truth appears in the King James Version 228 times, uh, 45 of those times in the New Testament. And that can be an inspiring Bible study for you. I was just looking at Nave's uh, topical Bible and just a complete outline of applications and uh, various perspectives on the truth. There are many books that have been written on the subject of truth. The Stanford Encyclopedia gives this summary in academic language called The Correspondence Theory of Truth. Narrowly speaking, the correspondence theory of truth is the view that truth is correspondence to a fact. So that's where they get their correspondence theory. A view that was advocated by Russell and Moore early in the 20th century. But the label is usually applied much more broadly to any view explicitly embracing the idea that truth consists in a relation to reality. That is, that truth is a relational property involving a characteristic relation to be specified to some portion of reality to be specified. Now you understand what truth is, don't you? No. Um, now it goes on. This is academic language. The correspondence theory of truth is often associated with metaphysical realism. Its traditional competitors, coherentist, pragmatist, and verificationist theories of truth, are often associated with idealism, anti-realism, and relativism. In recent years, the traditional competitors have been virtually replaced at least from the publication space, by deflationary theories of truth, and to a lesser extent by the identity theory, which now lead the attack against correspondence theories. Oh, I, yeah, you really have been missing out, haven't you? On what is truth? Will they find the truth is the question. But what is the truth about truth? A simple definition is truth is that which agrees with reality. Truth does relate to reality. And what is the greatest reality? How would you answer that question? What is the greatest reality? I think all of you could answer that question. The greatest reality is that God is. We have the booklet on the real God, proofs and promises, uh, the seven proofs of God's existence. I remember one time, I've told you this before, Mr. Herbert Armstrong asked, what is the greatest fact? Now, you could answer it in several ways. He answered it, the greatest fact is God rules supreme. That covers reality, doesn't it? Because it tells you that God exists. It tells you his omnipotence, his rulership, the expansiveness of his authority. God rules supreme. So God is the creator. And he reveals himself as to us through his word and through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Psalm 8, you're very well aware of. We sing it in some of our um, Sabbath services and our, and our sing, uh, Sabbath songs. Uh, David said in Psalm 8, in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him or care for him? So God, so David is saying he looked at the heavens and how awesome they are. Remember the Australian astronomers counted the stars in the heavens. They photographed, they took photographs of the various galaxies and purportedly counted 70 sextillion stars. Uh, that's uh, 70,000 million, 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 million. I forget which it was, but along that line. But the point is, is that those stars are ten times more than all of the grains of sand on the beaches on planet Earth. Ten times, when I, I take a handful of, of sand, and I think, well, there are a lot of grains of sand in there. But all the stars that they've counted are ten times more than all the grains of sand on Earth. I, you, as you know, I do uh, like to read Calvin and Hobbes when it's available. And Calvin and Hobbes were out. Uh, Calvin is this little uh, precocious boy uh, who has quite an imagination, and, and Hobbes is this uh, tiger friend. And they're out at night looking at the heavens, looking at the stars. And Calvin says, look at all the stars. The universe just goes out forever and ever. And then uh, philosophically, Hobbes the tiger says, it kind of makes you wonder why man considers himself such a big screaming deal. <laughs> For the next picture, you see them in front of the television set with the telephone ringing, the uh, stereo blasting, and that's why Calvin says, that's why we stay inside with our appliances. <laughs> you know, man just hides from God's reality. And we cannot, we need to not hide from God's reality, but run to God's reality and love God's reality. God revealed himself to Moses. I won't turn there, but remember when Moses asked uh, God when he peered uh, through the burning bush, he said, uh, what is his name and what shall I say to the people of Israel? And God said unto Moses, this is Exodus 3, verse 14, I am who I am. Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Yes, the greatest reality is God. John 1, 1 says God in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We used to interview uh, famous individuals in the World Tomorrow television cro uh, program, one of which was uh, Mr. Uh, Eccles, that is uh, Sir John Eccles, who was a Nobel laureate. And uh, he was asked the question about the meaning and purpose of life. He said, I would say that the meaning to get meaning out of it I would eventually have to say this, that the meaning has to come back to the Creator. Uh, he was uh, a foremost authority on the mind and on the brain, and he talked about meaning in life. The meaning has to come back to the Creator. One has to believe that there's more behind all this from our very existence as creating selves to what we do and how we live in what I like to think of as an altruistic society, caring for loving one another. You see, when we, as soon as you get away from materialism, you have wonderful opportunities. You've left being tied in, down in materialism, stuck in materialism. Each of us should be trying, in a way, to see how in our life we can achieve or get some concept or contact 
with the ultimate reality. Quite an interesting concept or approach from Sir John Eccles that we should get in contact with the ultimate reality. And who is in contact with the ultimate reality? Let's say uh, few, relatively few people on planet Earth who have an understanding of the truth. But God reveals truth. Let's turn to Romans, the first chapter, Romans 1. We'll uh, know that God has revealed truth through the creation. He is the creator. And in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Only God can reveal truth. And God has given that gift to us, relatively very few people on planet Earth. As we learn the truth, we walk in the truth, we live in the truth, we become more like God himself, and that's his purpose. What is truth? Let's review that in John 17, 17. John 17, 17, the correspondence theory of truth has some ideas and come close, comes close when it says that it relates to reality, but they don't know who the ultimate reality is or what the ultimate reality is. And you and I have contact with that ultimate reality in our prayers every day. John 17, 17, sanctify them, Jesus prays to his Father, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. I want to clarify a little later on some of the confusion some of our brethren have in applying the truth. We've been talking about treasuring the truth, but we want to know how to apply the truth as well. God has given us such awesome understanding through the holy days, the white throne judgment, the first fruits, our calling now is first fruits, and why some are not called, and why some are blinded. He even uses that term in uh, Romans, the 11th chapter. We might just turn there quickly. It's just one of those awesome truths that God gives us. The world is confused. It has all kinds of deceptive doctrines and myths, and yet God gives us the clear understanding of his purpose and as of his plan, as we heard in the sermonette, Romans, the 11th chapter, and uh, verse 26. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, that is spiritual blindness, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Then verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. What does that mean? Well, God is not holding them responsible. If they, if God were calling them and they were sealed to disobedience, 
they would have to go into a lake of fire. But God is blinding them so they will have mercy on them. That is, they can be in the white throne judgment after they have suffered and learned their lessons and will become teachable. And Paul says, oh, verse 33, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So God has a plan. He has a, his ways are truth and verity, as some of the King James language is used. Let's turn to Psalm 119. We're reviewing just what is truth. And here in Psalm 119, we have three descriptions of it. We saw the fundamental truth of what truth is in John 17, 17. Psalm 119 and verse 142. Psalm 119 and verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. So God's law is a basis for truth. It is truth. Verse 151. You are near, O Eternal, and all your commandments are truth. God's law is truth. His commandments are truth. Verse 160. Your word is true from the beginning, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Or as the New King James has it, the entirety of your word is truth. So we can have the confidence, we can rejoice in God's truth. As it says in verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one that finds great spoil or as one who finds great treasure. So God has given us truth, comprehensive truth. It's done spiritually, as we saw before, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, that the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So in the previous sermons titled Treasure the Truth and Live the Truth, we began to discuss seven ways to apply the truth. In part two, I covered three of the seven. So we'll review those, and we will miraculously get through all seven in the time remaining. Number one is to seek the truth, Hosea 4 and verse 6. Number one is to seek the truth. You may treasure the truth, you may value the truth, but it has to be an ongoing search. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Hosea 4 and verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge, that is spiritual knowledge. I will also reject you that you shall be no priest to me. Remember, God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19 and verse 6. And he's now calling us to be a kingdom of kings and priests under Christ. Seeing that you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget you. So Israel is destroyed because they did not seek the truth. Let's turn to Psalm 25 and verse 4. Psalm 25 and verse 4. I've probably read this to you about every other sermon I've given you, uh, but it's so so integral to who and what we are and the attitude. It's, it's amazing when you find people out in the world and Church of God people are out arguing and don't have a teachable attitude. And that's the key. Uh, if we are going to argue with God or just argue with other people for the sake of argument and not really be humble enough to know and understand with a pure heart God's truth, 
We're not going to be in God's kingdom. We need this attitude just as David did. David was a man after God's own heart. And he prayed this. And I hope you pray this prayer as well. Or put it in your own words. Verse 4 of Psalm 25. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you do I wait all the day. So God gives us those under, gives his understanding of his truth. Verse 14, the secret of the eternal is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. So we have to seek the truth and pray that God will give us the truth. And of course, to read the Bible daily, to seek that truth that way. I mentioned to you last time how one lady uh, called in, I wanted to talk to a minister, uh, talk to Mr. Davis, and she said, and I'm paraphrasing, your magazine has so much good spiritual information, but please take me off your mailing list. I would have to change my life if I keep reading your magazine. So this person's not seeking the truth. This person is resisting the truth. And remember Stephen's uh, uh, account there in uh, Acts the seventh chapter, and he really excoriated the Sanhedrin and said, "You with uncircumcised ears, you do resist the Spirit." And hopefully, we are not resisting the truth or God's Spirit, but we're seeking the truth. Uh, Jeremiah five verse uh, one. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn there. Uh, God would bless our nations if we would seek. The truth. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. God would pardon our nation if the leaders would seek the truth. In fact, God is letting time go on so that the gospel can go out. And he's going to preserve the world because there is an elect. As you know, in Matthew 24, verse 22, God has given us the blessing of seeking the truth and communicating the truth. He's giving us the blessing of preaching the true gospel. As you know, we've been accused of watering down the gospel. Some believe that the statement which we have in our statement of fundamental beliefs, that the gospel is, uh, con well, let me see if I have the statement here, the gospel of Christ is the good news of the forgiveness of our sins through Christ's sacrifice and of the soon coming kingdom and government of God. And so we're accused of watering down the gospel. Uh, one critic put it, this is contrary to what God restored to his church through Mr. Armstrong. Well, again, uh, individuals are, and as I call it, the either-or fallacy. They don't put together the whole scriptures. It's either this or it's that. It's either the law or grace when that's a fallacy. It's a, an argument, a false argument. It isn't either or. When you say either law or grace, it's God's law and God's grace. When you put, put it all together, and this false argument, the either or argument, has afflicted, I'm afraid, many of our brethren. You have to go through the Bible and see what does the Bible say about the gospel. And the... Uh, article by Dr. Winnale that you can pick up on the information table uh, gives you a listing of various descriptions, and we've gone through some of those in previous sermons, of the descriptions of the gospel. It talks about the gospel of grace. It talks about the gospel of your salvation, for example. 
So do we just do away with those and ignore those? Let me uh, share with you a letter that uh, Mr. Armstrong wrote uh, December 12th, uh, 1958. And uh, did Mr. Armstrong just limit himself to the description of a twofold gospel without including the sacrifice of Christ or without including uh, Christ as the king of the kingdom that is coming? I have just noticed, writes Mr. Armstrong, in going over letters written in the letter answering department, a tendency, as this reminds me, most of us have unconsciously followed. It is the habit of speaking of salvation only in terms of, quote, living out a life of obedience to God, end of quote. We seem to have a tendency to speak only and solely of obedience, commandment keeping. We seldom mention that experience of conversion, utter surrender, total repentance, accepting Christ and living faith as personal Savior, and receiving the Holy Spirit. We do not seem to stress sufficiently Christ as our Savior, faith in Him, than His faith in us, living faith which is inseparable from obedience. We must remember that the orthodox fundamental worldly churches and evangelists stress almost solely just Christ and faith in Him and accepting Him as personal Savior. Our more or less general omission of this leads many automatically to assume we preach a gospel of earning salvation by works. To a world accustomed to hearing almost altogether about Christ and a born-again experience, which of course they do not understand, we put ourselves and God's truth in a wrong light. Instead of speaking of being converted, changed by real repentance, surrender, faith in Christ, and receiving God's Holy Spirit, we speak of coming into the truth. A man may come into the truth, that is, let a certain amount of truth into his mind, and still be totally unconverted. We must not lead people to gather that we believe only in commandment keeping, which should then mean Saturday keeping, and earning salvation by works. We must stress the whole truth more. And brethren, that's what we've been doing. We've been stressing the whole truth on the telecast, in our booklets, in the magazine, and we will continue to do so. And I, I don't know if Mr. Meredith uh, reacted perhaps the same way, way I did when someone's saying that they're watering down the gospel. I'm saying, wait a minute, have you seen any of the telecasts? Have you seen Mr. Meredith out there just as I did uh, last night and uh, this morning on the uh, uh, television set, Mr. Meredith is talking about Christ's command to watch. And the kingdom is coming. And what is the solution to the world's problems? Uh, it's interesting that those who are critics aren't even watching, or if they are, they are ignoring the powerful message that is going out on the telecast and in the booklets and in writings. And I want to encourage all of you and those of you around the world who will see this uh, sermon or hear the sermon later on that please try to get in touch with the telecast one way or another. We send copies of the telecast out to the local churches hoping that you will be able to see those telecasts at least once a month. When I was coming into Ambassador College, I listened every day to Mr. Herbert Armstrong or Mr. Ted Armstrong on radio. 
I would make a, a habit of it, of going to uh, listening on it over Glendale radio at 7.30 in the morning and then rushing off to my 8 o'clock class. Or later on, I listened to it at, uh, I think it was on at noon. I listened to the noon broadcast. It was a habit. When the telecast came on, I watched the telecast. And I remember Mr. Armstrong, he was ending a sermon. He was uh, facetious. And he said, well, brethren, he says, uh, there's, uh, my telecast is on tomorrow morning, and uh, I suppose you're not going to watch it. And uh, he really got ex- he said, and then he got really excited and said, brethren, you need to be watching that telecast. You know, this is the work we're doing. And people who do not get involved, who do not identify with the work that Christ is doing through the church and through the ministry are those who are going to be more easily duped and deceived because their heart is not in the work, really. And that's the key, is your heart really in the work. Mr. Armstrong concludes the letter. We must stress the whole truth more. Repentance, surrender, Christ is Savior, being changed by God's Spirit as God's gift, by grace, following our conforming to his conditions of repentance and faith in Christ, the change from carnality to spiritual-mindedness, being begotten, and then the overcoming and enduring and growing life of obedience and living faith with Christ living his life in us. Does that sound familiar with what Mr. Meredith has been emphasizing these past years? Let's not leave Christ and grace out of our speech and letters. With love, in Jesus' name, Herbert W. Armstrong. And yet those who are criticizing us and say they are following Mr. Armstrong really are not following Mr. Armstrong. They're giving lip service uh, to it and are not really preaching the full gospel or understanding the full truth of God. So it's sad that some of our brethren are deceived over a few words and take a narrow-minded view. We thank God for the whole gospel. As uh, Paul said to the uh, people in Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So again, I encourage you to be sure to read Dr. Douglas Winnale's article in the World Ahead, December 14th, that's yesterday, or two days ago, uh, Confused Critics Limit the Gospel. And, of course, he quotes Mr. Armstrong there, What is Jesus Christ's gospel? It is the good news of the kingdom of God. It is the message of divine government, government by God's laws. Of course, that message includes the knowledge about the Savior, high priest, and coming king. Of course, it includes the true way of salvation, which the churches have lost. I just tremble, brethren. I think of people who are criticizing the fact that we preach the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. Are those critics denying Christ? Are they denying their own forgiveness? Pray for them. I pray that they be not deceived and they turn to the King of kings and Lord of lords and our great high priest who's coming back. So beware of those who have splintered off from the full truth of God and are arguing in a narrow-minded way and are not fulfilling Matthew 23:23, 23, where Jesus said, You hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and come and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. So when it comes to the gospel, as Mr. Meredith wrote in his December 8th, the member letter, 
Quote, we are going to reach the whole world with the gospel of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That is what God commands us to do, and I hope all of you will join us fervently and prayerfully in doing this. I hope you've already gotten uh, the member letter and have read it. So number one, which has taken a little while, is to apply the truth. We need to seek the truth. It's God's gift and treasure to you. We apply the whole truth. Seek the whole truth and communicate the whole truth. Number two is to renew the spirit of truth daily. John sixteen thirteen, Renew the spirit of truth daily. God has given us that awesome gift that he calls the spirit of truth. John 16, verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. Though God says he has given us the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. Not just part of the truth, but all the truth. Now we need to renew that spirit. You know, Second Timothy 1.6, to stir up the gift that's in you. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's turn to Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter. 2 Corinthians 4. Remember, you let one day go by without praying, and I'm sure all of us have done that at one time, but that's breaking the first commandment. It's having another God before the true God. It's saying, I had something more important. Now, if you're unconscious, you know, we understand. You're unconscious for 24 hours, you may not be able to pray. <laughs> you know, But nonetheless, if you're conscious... You need to seek God every day. Commandment number one, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, God said in Exodus, the 20th chapter. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray as Jesus taught, Give us this day, this day, our daily bread. Not this week, our weekly bread. But every day. We pray every single day. Second Corinthians here, the fourth chapter. And uh, verse 16, For which cause we faint not, though our outward man perish, or is wasting away, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Are you renewed day by day? Remember Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 talk about the old man and the new man. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, as it tells us in, uh, just give you that reference. Uh, that is Ephesians uh, 4, uh, verse 23. It says to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So number two, I'm moving along a little more quickly here, is renew the spirit of truth daily. Uh, we have an old sermon in our sermon library, number 84, seven steps to daily renewal. Number two, in applying the attitudes and applications of truth is renew the spirit of truth daily. Number three is to obey the truth. Human beings don't like the word obey, although in the military you learn that particular function. First uh, Peter 1. <laughs> I still remember, I still have visions of going through basic training and landing there at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and, and uh, how the sergeant was just really yelling at us uh, 
raw recruits and uh, put the fear in you, and you, you better move. You move fast, and, and you had to unload all the uh, uh, duffel bags and uh, so forth. That was uh, quite an experience. I'm, I'm having a flashback right now. <laughs> but, uh, but you learn. You learn to obey. That's for sure. You learn to respond. You learn to cooperate. Uh, we hopefully we respond and we cooperate. First Peter, the first chapter, verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. How do you purify your souls? Your, your life in obeying the truth. How? Through the Spirit. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So God's true people are those who obey the truth and they love one another with a fervent heart. So how do you obey the truth? God's word is truth. Therefore, to obey the truth means you live by the Bible, Luke 4.4 and Matthew 4.4. One obeys the truth by living by the commandments and the principles of the Bible. But there are those who are carnally minded. You know Romans 8.7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Or as it has in the NIV, the sinful mind is hostile to God. Romans, uh, the second chapter, And verse 2, Romans 2, there are those who are just rebellious. To be told what to do is just anathema to their own consciousness. That's the carnal mind. It's hostile to God. Uh, Romans, the second chapter, and uh, verse 7, well, to those who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth. But if you don't obey the truth, you're obeying something else. What? What's that? Unrighteousness. But obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. What's going to happen to them? Not glory and honor and mortality, but tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, to the Jew first and also of the Greek. Well, let me mention here, brethren, that we do strive to follow and obey biblical instructions. Obedience is necessary for salvation. I had an article in Tomorrow's World magazine by that title some uh, years ago. Is obedience required for salvation? So there are principles, and there are applications of those principles. The Bible, for example, does not outline the order of Sabbath services. So when we talk about God's church, we talk about instructions, we talk about responsiveness to those instructions, cooperation to instructions. We're talking about obedience to the truth. In 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, both chapters, I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, describe the ministerial offices within the church. And the church has authority to set guidelines, to set policies, and to set procedures. Uh, Mr. Meredith has given us balanced guidelines based on biblical principles for dress and modesty, for example. He spoke last week about Mr. Armstrong's approach to makeup. The church administered a policy based on biblical principles which include church government and applying the biblical principle of modesty versus vanity. Now, as Mr. Meredith uh, may explain to you last uh, last week, uh, how the church uh, did not uh, observe makeup, and later on there was a prohibition 
uh, for makeup, and then later on in this uh, ministerial bulletin of October 23, 1974, there was a change in policy. How could Mr. Armstrong make that change in policy? Because he had the authority to do so within the guidelines of biblical government within the church. And this is called policy on makeup. Mr. Armstrong writes, No woman in God's church should ever appear painted, quote-unquote. As we relax moderately on this question, women must be cautioned against overuse, bad taste, and that the scriptures admonish women to retain modesty. I think you all know that I have never advocated going to extremes, but a sound and right middle-of-the-road policy. I do not want to see God's women dressing and grooming so very plainly and unworldly that they appear to be wearing a religious uh, uniform. That is, to set themselves so far off from the world as to, as a whole that they actually appear religious, quote-unquote, and also a little ridiculous. He says, both men and women should dress in a manner that does not attract special attention because of grooming or appearance too far from the average. And we should take a little pride in our appearance, not from vanity, but to be pleasing to others. If on a slight relaxing of our policy on makeup, did you get that? It's a policy. The church teaches doctrine but it also teaches applications of the principles of the Bible and applications of the doctrine. And it gives guidelines for the church. And so Mr. Armstrong says, if on a slight relaxing of our policy on makeup, some women, woman appears too far toward overdoing it, the minister should speak to her privately about it, kindly but still admonishing her. And that's called the policy on makeup. So we have to understand, brethren, the distinction between biblical truth and the application of principles and organization administration within the the church. God gives the church, he gives the offices in the church, as I mentioned, Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. And the church follows the biblical principles of administration. That includes organization, guidelines, policies, and procedures. And that administration has biblical authority. Human beings are carnal and hostile towards God's law, but converted people, brethren, are teachable and cooperative. They appreciate God's commandments. They don't rankle at the word command or commandment. I won't turn there, but John 15, verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment. Now, those who have a hostile attitude are going to all of a sudden rebel at that very sentence. This is my commandment. Now, wait a minute. I don't want any commandments. Don't tell me what to do. And that's a lot of the American philosophy from time to time. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Oh, well, no, we should just suggest uh, that we love one another. No, he doesn't suggest it at all. It's a commandment. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. Just to give you a little here, again, on organization in God's church. And uh, I can't recall, I believe I may have read at one time the word command in maybe one of Mr. Armstrong's writings years ago, but I, I don't recall any minister or in recent decades, for that matter, even using the word command in terms of, of church government. 
And yet, what did the Apostle Paul do in writing to the church at Thessalonica? Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which you have received of us. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any man would not work, neither should he eat. Verse 12, Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But you, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And then verse 14, And if any obey not, we can't talk about obedience. Now, Mr. Meredith has for decades in the church been preaching and teaching and setting the example of servant leadership. And we haven't had to do these kinds of commands towards the church. And yet, if we did, it would be for the love and the benefit and the safety and the harmony of the church. It would be for the church's benefit, just as the Apostle Paul is commanding these brethren in Thessalonica for the harmony and unity of the church. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. So the point here, brethren, is that we need to appreciate God's commandments. We need to love the truth. We need to respond to the instructions and biblical principles. But again, let's understand that there's a difference between truth in the Bible versus the application of truth which may change from time to time based on governmental authority within the church. And Mr. Armstrong changed that. He had the right to change that by making a policy decision, a policy difference. And I hope that we can all understand that distinction, that policy decisions aren't of themselves truth. God's word is truth. But it's an application of truth as we follow the principles and guidelines of the Bible with all our heart. Now that, so number three uh, is obey the truth. Number four is to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 uh, verse 15. Ephesians 4 uh, verse 15. We had uh, sermons number 146 and 148 were to speak the truth in love, which is what, of course, uh, Apostle Paul tells us here in Ephesians 4 as we grow up into the fullness and the stature of Christ. And I've heard many uh, comments about Mr. Meredith's sermon on the stature of Christ. I hope that uh, if you didn't hear that, that you will get that out of the library. Uh, That's Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Again, he's talking about the organizational structure of the church and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, when we speak the truth in love, you may speak the truth in arrogance or in revenge or jealousy. Well, God doesn't want you to do that. You think about your words. How are they going to affect the listener? 
Is it for the purpose of edification, for fulfilling maybe Romans 18.15, for Romans, Matthew 18.15, when you go to your brother, when you have a conflict, and you do it in love, you speak the truth in love. You don't say, well, you're... Your uh, your blouse is the same blouse as my blouse, and you know I, I you know you, you shouldn't have bought it. I, whatever kind of you know criticisms people have, you don't get into those petty kinds of, of comments, but you think about the effect it's going to have on someone else. Mr. Herbert Armstrong, in a radio program I just heard here recently, an old one on tape, he said, "Some of you professing Christians think you are converted." Well, you are no more converted than a puppy dog. He said, oh, then he backed off. He said, oh, I don't mean to hurt you. I I want to wake you up. I'm telling you this in love for your welfare. So you wanted to speak the truth in love. But I thought it was kind of humorous. He said, you're no more converted than a puppy dog. But Mr. Armstrong was striving to speak the truth in love. He was trying to help his audience to be to wake up from uh, their perhaps uh, deception, thinking that they were converted. Now, some, again, have criticized the church because our our mission is stated as a threefold mission. When Mr. Armstrong had it as a twofold mission, I think we've described that uh, before. But I just wanted to share with you um, one other aspect uh, of the mission. Did Mr. Armstrong limit? the mission of the church, into just two sentences. Well, of course he didn't. Uh, he would even generalize, as he did in the Good News, August 1983, when he said, but what is the divine mission of the church? What is its purpose? The answer is to do the work of God, which Jesus started and now continues through his church. That was more of a general statement, not a, a, a specific uh, mission statement. Mr. Armstrong conducted other missions. He founded AICF, which was Ambassador International Cultural Foundation, for the purpose of educating and serving needy projects around the world. And in addition to celebrating the incredible human potential through the fine arts program at Ambassador Auditorium in Pasadena, California. So did Mr. Armstrong just have those two mission statements concerning the gospel? preaching the gospel of the kingdom and feeding the flock. Did he have any other mission statements? Yes, he did. In his uh, autobiography, uh, Volume 2, Chapter 80, uh, June 18, 1975, co-worker letter, he states this, quote, Some weeks ago, I authorized the formation of a new foundation, Ambassador International Cultural Foundation, AICF. It's, it is nonprofit dedicated to serving humanity worldwide. It is nonprofit dedicating to serving humanity worldwide. Now listen to this. It has become a necessary adjunct to this new worldwide dimension of getting Christ's true gospel to the nations through heads of government. So he identified a, another mission statement that was apart from the twofold mission statement and said this is a necessary adjunct to getting the true gospel out to the nations. So let's understand that we have to avoid that either-or fallacy of argument, that, that kind of argument. I can talk more about that sometime. But let's understand that we must speak the truth in love. 
Uh, let's turn to one scripture on that. Uh, still have a little time left. Psalm 15. Psalm 15. We sing this in our hymnal. Psalm 15, verse 1 through 3. Lord, eternal, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly, who works righteousness, who speaks the truth in his heart, who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friends. We have to be careful what we say, brethren, and I know that uh, if someone says something negative about another person, it gets that other person. And I've tried experimenting. And, uh, well, I know it's happened to me. Someone that I didn't uh, think uh, liked me, I, his friend says, did you know what so-and-so said about you? Said, he really liked what you said. Really? I didn't know that. I mean, th- the point is, can you say something good about someone whom you don't even like and expect perhaps that even that good, encouraging comment might get to that person? Speaking the truth in love is what is an application, a main application of the truth, treasuring the truth. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, Psalm 15 and verse 2. So number four is speak the truth in love. Number five, we've already covered 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, does not rejoice in iniquity, 1 Corinthians 13.6, but rejoices in the truth. Let's turn to uh, Psalm 100. I sometimes at night when I can't sleep, I will recite Psalm 100 in my mind. Make a joyful noise or a joyful shout, as it has in the New King James Version. Make a joyful shout unto the eternal, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know you that the Lord, he is God, and that he has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So let's be joyful in the truth. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, talking about truth, said, The truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. It's still there. So number five is rejoice in the truth. Number six is to love the truth. Let's turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 again. 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. We're talking about uh, the lawless one that is coming. And those that follow the lawless one, Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, starting in verse 9. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 9. Uh, talking about uh, the evil one. Uh, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. The false prophet's going to cause all kinds of incredible false miracles with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish, 
They're going to deceive many because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, these concepts and applications overlap, I understand. But they did not receive the love of the truth. Mr. Armstrong's sermon that I referred to uh, in a previous sermon, when he said, we are guardians of the truth. We, brethren, are called to guard the truth and to live the truth. And, of course, the church is called the bulwark of truth in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, the pillar and support of the truth, as it is in the NASB. Let's turn to uh, 2 Timothy 4. Just uh, forward a couple pages, a few pages, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1. It says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching or doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They have the itching ears, so they want to hear something new. They want to hear something exotic. They don't want to stick to the trunk of the tree. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That's happening, brethren, and will continue to happen. But we must love the truth and stick to the trunk of the tree. Let's be joyful. Let's be thankful that we can deeply appreciate the truth and internalize it because we're to gird up our waists with truth. That is the particular armor of God in Ephesians 6. So we must stick to the trunk of the tree of the Bible, and we must internalize the truth. So number six is love the truth. Number seven is worship God in spirit and in truth. John 4, verse 23. John 4 and verse 23. Mr. John O'Gwin gave an outstanding sermon by that title, tape number 59, Worship God and Worship in Spirit and in Truth. John 4 and verse 23. But the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. You can't deceive God. You can't fool God. He knows our hearts. He tests our hearts and our character. And he knows what we're like. And when he knows that you're shedding tears and repentance, and he knows that you're shedding tears and sorrow for those who are pained and suffering, uh, when he knows that you're crying out to him for deliverance and for truth and for love, uh, then you will be worshiping God in spirit and in truth if you're filled with the Spirit, which is, of course, Ephesians 5.18. Be not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's turn to uh, Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verse 8. So number 7 is worship God in spirit and in truth. That's so profound that the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, verse 23 and verse 24. Let's turn to Philippians, the fourth chapter, Mr. Partian's favorite, one of his favorite scriptures. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, 
Our minds need to be filled with truth, and we need to think true thoughts that reflect the Bible. Whatever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, pure, lovely, of a good report, virtue, if there be any praise, anything worthy, praiseworthy, think on these things. So God wants us to think the thoughts of truth. And we need to pray with a pure heart. Let's turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. We actually have a uh, sermon in our tape library about the pure in heart. And Psalm 145 reflects that. Of course, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 145. And uh, verse 18, 45 verse 18. The eternal is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The eternal preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So God says he is near to all those who love him. We have a mission to accomplish, and the only way we can do it is if we are close to God and we are worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, and God's Spirit is flowing out from us in rivers of living water. Sometimes uh, God's Spirit just flows out in little trickles of uh, His Spirit, uh, but it needs to flow out from us in rivers of living water. And that happens because we are close to Him. We're spending time on our knees. We're meditating on His law. We're meditating on His Word. We're keeping up with the work that Christ is doing through His church. Mr. Meredith concludes his member letter of December 8, 2006. As I am sure you all agree, we need to do the work of God far more powerfully. We here in Charlotte are going to do our level best, and we need your total loyalty and support. So let us put our shoulder to the wheel and go all out in finishing the work of the living Christ as we see these prophetic events cascading upon the world preparatory to his return. As the Apostle Paul told us, and I tell you now, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. We know our mission, brethren, and we've been following it and going to continue to strive with all our whole hearts to fulfill that mission. To preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the world as a witness, Matthew 24:14. To feed the flock, as the Apostle Paul challenged Peter. To preach the Ezekiel warning of the watchman. And to recapture the values of apostolic Christianity. We're preparing as kings and priests. And we're going to accomplish that because it tells us in Zechariah 4:6 that it's not by might or power, but by God's Spirit. And if all of us have God's Spirit and we're praying to renew God's Spirit of truth in us daily, then we will be able to fulfill and complete that mission. And we will complete it through a personal relationship with God and with Christ. Let's turn to John, the 14th chapter. And again, I fear for those who are denying or downplaying the sacrifice of Christ and the forgiveness of sins as a part of the good news of the gospel. Because Jesus himself said here in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. He says, no man comes unto me, unto the Father, but by me. So if we deny Jesus Christ, we're denying our salvation. And we're hypocrites in a way to think that we would preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and not preach the forgiveness of sin through our Savior, Jesus Christ. All of us know, because we've been deeply moved at the Passover services, deeply moved in our own lives to know that we are sinners and we need Christ's forgiveness. And the world needs Christ's forgiveness. And it needs to be brought to repentance. And that's the message that we continually bring out in our magazines, in the telecast, and in our booklets. And, of course, we as God's people continue to do it in our lives by our witnessing through our own life. God has given us the spirit of truth. We saw that in John 16 and verse 13. Let's turn to John 15. In uh, verse 26, John 15, and verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, but comes through Christ, he shall testify of me. So, brethren, let's apply the truth. We treasure the truth. It's so priceless and valuable, understanding that Few people know that God has revealed to us even the deep things of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8 and 9. And the world knows very little about the plan of God and the, His purpose. And we are privy to that. It doesn't make us better. It gives us a greater responsibility. How can we treasure the truth and apply the truth in our lives? Number one was let us seek the truth. Number two was to renew the spirit of truth daily. Number three was to obey the truth and walk in the truth. Number four was to speak the truth in love. Number five, rejoice in the truth, which is the title of the sermon. Number six, love the truth. And number seven, worship God in spirit and in truth. So let us be faithful guardians of the truth. Let's treasure the truth. Let us always live the truth. And let us today and forever rejoice in God's truth.